Bert Cohen here. We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Could it be intentional with the news now, all Trump, all the time? A lot is going on that is getting no attention, but greatly affects our lives and America's real national security. But we don't know about it. For example, at the end of July, when no one was paying attention, our elected public servants in Washington, Democrat and Republican, quietly approved 17, no, 717 billion. It's hard to even think about that. Never mind, say it. 717 billion dollars in so-called defense spending. There was hardly any debate or media attention. It just slipped by us. This in the context of the fact that the United States already spends more than on the military than the next 10 nations put together. Some Americans and perhaps even politicians who strive to serve the public good might be bold enough to suggest that it, well, might be time to start investing in the American people instead of enriching a few well-connected defense contractors that we dare to look at what actually adds to America's national security. How can a bill to spend three quarters of a trillion dollars in peacetime, no less, just sail through Congress and no one notices? At some point, peeing away unimaginable amounts of public treasure in the face of so much real domestic need has to be given a serious examination. Toward this goal, the Institute for Policy Studies has just issued a paper titled The $717 Billion Defense Bill that just breezed through the Senate should be a national scandal. With us to shed light on that expenditure is Curry Peterson-Smith, who is Michael Ratner Middle East Fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies. He researches U.S. empire, borders, and migration. Curry, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you so much for having me. Well, currently, the military authorization bill receives virtually no attention. The article suggests that it must become a place for dissent and discussion, end of quote. With all the intense partisanship throughout America, as the article points out, what do you think the reasons are why the National Defense Authorization Act is one of the few pieces of federal budget legislation that sails through every year without fail on a bipartisan basis. Why, do, why is this the only uh, piece of the federal budget that just goes through without question? Well, it's an important and, um, and great question, and I really think that it points to a deep commitment on the part of 
the the people in power in this country to U.S. Uh, empire, you know, to a history and, and a current reality of U.S. violence abroad. Uh, it's true that there was virtually there's virtually a consensus on um, on the question of arming uh, U.S. armed forces and the U.S.'s various allies. And in fact, to the extent that there's disagreement, the disagreement is not about whether the U.S. should maintain the largest uh, military in the world and with the biggest budget and arming all kinds of violent allies. The question is just how much to invest in, um, in those things. And so throughout this budget, what you see is actually the Congress giving more money to the Pentagon in, in, in a number of cases than what they actually requested. Um, for example, the budget authorizes the, the funding of uh, the, the manufacture of 13 new ships for the U.S. Navy. That's actually three more than what the Navy asked for. So that is the extent of the disagreement, <laughs> not about whether uh, the, the U.S. should have more naval ships, but just how many ships. And in this regard, Congress is actually working to outdo the Trump administration. They're actually funding the military more than what the Pentagon is requesting. Yeah, that is really amazing. I wonder if there are any other uh, portions of government <laughs> that get more money thrown at it than they even ask for. Somehow, right. I doubt it. it. It really, it says so much about our national priorities that that Congress insists on spending more than the people who actually are involved in the subject matter even ask for. And it's, it was interesting, just recently here, this show is coming uh, at you from uh, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and uh, recently there was a, uh, a really large ship that came through here in, in the harbor, the USS right. Manchester, a very large military ship. Uh, it, it sort of looked like uh, a Batmobile, a massive Batmobile of the seas, like a stealth missile or something like that. It was really cool, this big new weapon. Aren't, I mean, I was amazed to see it. Everybody else around here seemed to think, wow, that's really cool. Uh, and it was, it was huge. It was incredibly uh, Batmobile-ish. Um, but it, it, aren't such vessels kind of outdated in, a more, in light of a more realistic 21st century uh, challenges that we have for our national defense? I mean, I don't get it. No, you know, that's actually a really important question, and it's worth, it's worth investigating that logic, because the, the question is, if what the U.S. is involved in doing is supposedly fighting terrorism, um, right. which I don't, you know, I, 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 I just don't buy the idea that that's what's happening. In fact, there's been a marked increase in terrorism, the growth of various terrorist networks since the declaration of the, the war on terror. But if the idea is that the, the Pentagon is involved in a fight against terrorism, then right, why would the U.S. need these massive battleships? After all, that's not, I mean, Al-Qaeda and ISIS are not naval powers. <laughs> and right, and, and so actually, well, actually what the manufacture of ships like that points to is that the U.S., first of all, it is the case that um, the, the, the U.S. has maintained a massive um, well, the, 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 let, me, let me say this. The extent of U.S. empire and the U.S. military presence abroad far exceeds what's happening in the battlefield. That is, the United States maintains 
tens of thousands of troops across Japan, for example, where there is no active uh, armed conflict, right? Mm. That's true, actually, all around the world. But the fact that they're manufacturing new warships and, and expanding the Navy really points to not the present of U.S. warfare, but what they anticipate to be the future. And that is actually what this budget really points to. It, mm. it is... It is um, the latest indication in what's actually been a series of um, press conferences and statements from the Pentagon, um, and, and there, there's the fact that the Congress approved this budget really shows a consensus on this, mm. that the U.S. should be preparing for conflict not with um, irregular forces like ISIS or al-Qaeda, but actually with powers like China and Russia. That's actually what the, the construction of these, these naval warships point to. So it's really, when, when people see these massive vessels sailing through the harbor in Portsmouth, um, and they kind of look at them in awe, yes. it, it's worth actually interrogating that and looking at the future, that, the, the future that the Pentagon kind of envisions for the world, which is a nightmarish future. I just, I can't imagine what people think it's for what I mean. It, it it's fun, you know. It's this big toy, and you know, right. boys grow up to be bigger boys and play with bigger toys. But what the heck is it going to do? And I tried to find out how much this ship, the USS Manchester, cost. I I somehow I couldn't figure it out. I'm thinking many many, probably hundreds of millions. I have no idea. That stuff is right. hidden, and I didn't see anybody else asking about that. Very strange. Right. And, Go ahead. Yeah, it, it's really it's, it's it. Um, well, it's good that journalists like you are asking those questions, but the, the fact is, it, it's true. It really it, it's it's going under the radar, yeah. and even so, you know, you have um, you have the the very hot conflicts that the United States is involved in that the United States funds right. throughout the Middle East, for example, oh, yeah. um, in in Yemen. Um, which uh, which I'd love to talk about in a yes, minute. Yes. Um, you know, in in places like uh, Somalia, actually throughout Africa. Um, uh, but but then you you also have these these other the other things that have been in the news in terms of U.S. foreign policy have been these negotiations, right? You have Trump sitting down with Putin in a in a meeting that wasn't recorded, and we're still not exactly sure mm. what was said. You know. Um, about, but but they're talking about the U.S.'s relationship with Russia, and then you have, of course, this ongoing set of negotiations between the United States and North Korea. Um, but the fact is that even even while the cameras are focused on, um, you know, Trump sitting down with Kim Jong Un or with with Vladimir Putin, what's happening in the Pacific is an arms race, a new arms race, really? in which the United States is. Um, stationing more and more troops and, uh, and, and weapons. The United States is arming its allies like Japan and South Korea uh, and the Philippines. And China is also arming. China is building up their navy as well. And so there are these, um, what are today, small conflicts over various islands and parts of uh, the South China Sea and the Pacific Ocean that are, that are contested. But really those point to, uh, those, what, are, what are today small conflicts point to a very scary future where um, on two sides, different powers are actually arming and preparing for uh, more heated confrontations in the future. So that's, that's really what we should see when we look at uh, these naval ships being built. 
somehow I'm reminded now, okay, I'm a World War I fiend, but uh, in 1914, all these countries were building up arms, building up arms, building up arms, and then it didn't take much for a horrible yeah. war, unintentional, <laughs> where a few million people died horrible deaths. Uh, it just, you know, building these these massive weapon systems, you know, what fun is it if they're not going to be used? Uh, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Curry Peterson-Smith, Michael Ratner, Middle East Fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies. We're talking about an IPS uh, new report, the $717 billion defense bill that just breezed through the Senate should be a national scandal. Talk about national scandal. There's You mentioned Yemen, and it seems to me the whole idea of spending on the military is for what is called national security. We want to have policies that enhance our national security. We're fighting these you know, terrorist groups, these low-budget terrorist groups that can do a lot of damage. And, you know, here we're spending zillions of dollars on these crazy weapon systems that really don't have any use for that. Meanwhile, Yemen is going on. The people in the United States, it seems to me, yeah, probably everybody's heard of Yemen. They know vaguely that it's somewhere you know, uh, over there in the Middle East area. But people don't know what's going on here. Whereas in the Middle East, where it actually is, um, I would think virtually everybody understands what the U.S. is doing in Yemen with our tax dollars. Uh, talk about that a little bit, please. How, what we're doing there, what, you know, part of our massive budget is investing, shall we say, in uh, what's going on in Yemen, and it's got to be making a lot of people very, very angry at the United States. Absolutely. Well, unfortunately, um, we've got some fairly breaking news to, to talk about in oh, terms no. of what the U.S. is doing uh, in, in Yemen and throughout the Middle East. It's, it is the case that uh, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, who've been carrying out really a scorched-earth uh, siege of Yemen for several years now, uh, just um, just this morning, they carried out an airstrike against what was a school bus, um, oh, a school yeah, bus full that. of 60 people, most of whom were children. And so dozens were, were killed and, um, and, and more were wounded. These were uh, children from a summer camp who were going to visit a mosque uh, as an as a end-of-the-year, end-of-summer tradition, um, and it was targeted by an airstrike. So... That was done, um, again, by Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates, but the United States has been involved in um, mid-air refueling of Saudi and UAE aircraft. The United States has been supplying intelligence to uh, the targets that Saudi Arabia and the UAE are using. Uh, and, of course, the aircraft that Saudi Arabia and the UAE use are mostly made in the United States, right. or made in the U.S. and Britain, as well as the bombs that are being dropped. So, yes. really, the U.S. is doing everything except for actually dropping the bombs themselves. It's also the case that not far away, um, actually, Israel is carrying out an attack on Gaza at the moment. Okay. Uh, and news, uh, news broke that um, they carried out an airstrike that killed a mother, a pregnant mother, and her toddler. Again, these are uh, from aircraft that were bought, um, that were made in the United States, sold by the United States, dropping bombs that were made in the United States. So the U.S. is very actively involved in um, 
in armed conflicts throughout the Middle East, but the United States is also, in the cases of, uh, of Palestine, in the case of Yemen, doing everything except for dropping the bombs themselves. And that's costing us a lot of money. And what we're talking about here is this unbelievably huge military budget, defense budget. And (laughs) we we live in a capitalist system, and the idea is to invest prudently, you know, to do things that are going to pay off. I (laughs) have a hard time seeing how this is going to pay off in enhanced national security when everybody there knows the terror that is coming down on them. I... I don't. I don't know if my guess is we can't even look at the dollars spent with regard to to Yemen because it's probably hidden all over the place. Do you have any idea what you know? How much uh, investment the U.S. is is supplying to Saudi Arabia and and the UAE for their uh, horrible war on Yemen? Right. It's a great question, and and as you say, it is complicated because on one hand you have what budgets like this big $717 billion um, military budget itself appropriates. But then there are all kinds Mm. of separate deals that are made bilaterally between the United States and its allies uh, that are separate. And so, for example, last year, there was was big news about the fact that uh, the Trump administration negotiated with Saudi Arabia a $110 billion uh, weapons deal that would that would be carried out over the next decade. So that's something that is not, you know, that figure isn't in the the, the fiscal year 2019 uh, budget, which is what Congress just mm-hmm, passed. Mm-hmm. This is something that's, that's different. And similarly, uh, the United States makes all sorts of, um, of, of deals with Israel, with the United Arab Emirates, and so on. So there's, there's the kind of annual budget, and then there are these, these other uh, agreements. So it's difficult to know exactly uh, how much the U.S. has invested in this particular war. Of course, the, the planes that, uh, that were involved in this airstrike in Yemen, when exactly were they bought and sold by the United, were they sold by the United States? We're not sure, right? But, but there's a kind of cumulative effect where it's been years of the United States arming Saudi Arabia and the UAE and yeah. Israel and Jordan and Egypt, et cetera, et cetera. I, I wanted to, to also follow up on what you were saying about how irrational it seems, right, that, that, that this would somehow be um, a good investment of the, the, the wealth of this country. And uh, like you, I, I, mean, I, mean, I, I, I would agree, if we, if we approach it from the question of what's good for humanity, then obviously it's a nightmarish investment. And even from the perspective of um, creating stability, yes, right, which yes. is, that's, that's part of the, the notion of security, right. uh, that the U.S. would be standing up for security in Yemen and for its own national security, that points to the idea that the U.S. would be taking actions that are promoting stability in Yemen. But the fact is, this airstrike that happened on this school bus is not the first thing that the United States has been involved in in terms of attacking Yemen. And even the, the war that Saudi Arabia and the UAE have been carrying out for a few years now, that actually came after what was years of the United States directly being involved in striking Yemen uh, throughout the Obama administration, actually, mm. using cruise missile strikes and drone strikes. Uh, the U.S. was for years involved in attacking Yemen. And instead of stabilizing Yemen, we see that things have actually escalated, where now um, the U.S. is giving more funding to its partners as they carry out uh, more of a war. So from the perspective of of stability, from the perspective certainly of humanitarianism, this kind of investment is a disaster. 
I, I think that you're right to ask the question, then, well, wh- why, year after year, does the United States invest so much money in uh, militarization? And I believe that, that the people who run this country believe that the United States needs to be number one, and there's this idea that we are the great nation, that we're an exceptional nation. Uh-huh. The fact is, it's, it's through tremendous violence that the United States uh, maintains its superpower status, and that's what this is about. Yeah, last time I checked, uh, you know, might doesn't make right, but I suppose that's so naive, so naive. But people around the world, I mean, again, the Middle East, it's a hot spot, and they, people there, you know, Libya to Palestine to Israel, all these, they understand what the U.S. is doing, and I just, I, it, it just doesn't make sense to invest that way, and yet it doesn't get discussed. It's, as you say, like self-perpetuating. And with regard to the process of spending the money, having been in a governmental body myself in, in my state Senate, generally a budget is a big, thick document that various committees go through line by line and look at it and right. question it. And I can't help but think that in general, spending bills in Congress do get a thorough hearing and discussion. Is there something procedurally unique, distinct from other other budget items about defense spending in general? Do they not go through it? Well, I think, again, the, what's really disturbing is it is true that they spend a tremendous amount. From what I can tell, uh, they are going through line on line and being quite... Um, they're, they're, they're focusing a lot of attention on where this money goes, but what they're doing is reviewing requests from the Department of Defense. You know, the Department of Defense gives them what, what they call a wish list, essentially. Oh, these are the weapon systems that we would like to buy. Sure. Um, here are the, the conflicts that we're focused on, et cetera. And what Congress has done is gone through the Pentagon's wish list and said, you know what, we see the number of ships that you, you're requesting. We'll, we'll raise you some. <laughs> we'll actually... Will add to uh, what, what you've requested. So, unfortunately, it's not a it's not a question of carelessness. It's that they are so invested from 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 what I can tell, they're so invested in in the question of U.S. war making. And I I think that you're right to raise the question. Let's contrast that to other right. questions that, that the government is faced with. I mean, we've th- this spring in in the United States was so so much. Um, of the attention rightly was focused on what I thought was a really incredible revolt among teachers in West Virginia and Oklahoma and mm-hmm. Arizona and Kentucky. And when these teachers are pointing to their years and in some cases decades old textbooks, schools that are in decay, um, that are not suitable for to, to teach and learn in, uh, and when these teachers are fighting for higher wages for themselves and better learning conditions for their students, the response is always, well, we just don't have the money. Right. Um, you know, and teachers are supposed to be held accountable to, I mean, there, there's this, this testing regime that I really disagree with, uh, but the idea is to be able to uh, supposedly evaluate teachers on how good a job they're doing teaching. Right. Well, where is the evaluation that says, wow, here's what the United States has done in Yemen over the past 15 years, and things haven't gotten better, they've actually gotten worse. There, there is no such uh, evaluation when it comes to U.S. making war abroad. 
That is a very, very interesting point. You know, everybody, you know, if they're working uh, in corporate America, you get, uh, you know, yearly or whatever, regular evaluations of how you're doing. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Not the military. Uh, I, I, you reminded me, uh, I'm, I'm sure quite a bit older than you, but there used to be a, uh, a poster that said, when will our schools have all the money they need and the military has to hold a bake sale to buy a bomber? Yeah, right. well, that was a long time ago. But here we are spending more than ever. The defense budget has long been a significant part of our budget, and there's really no way to break it down, as you point out, because it's, it's complicated and it's kind of hidden. I wonder about the recently approved $717 billion, comparing that with wartime spending in World War II, Korea, Vietnam. You know, technically, we're not at war now. There was, of course, there, during what's known in the U.S. as the Cold War, which right. for many places in the world was actually a hot war throughout yeah. throughout Latin America, oh, yeah. Southeast Asia, and Africa, point. et cetera. Yes. But, but, you know, there was a tremendous amount of military spending not only to funding those those conflicts and funding the U.S.'s allies in those conflicts, but but also on these very expensive and <laughs> catastrophically destructive weapon systems, particularly this amazing infrastructure that the United States built around manufacturing and, and uh, preparing to deploy nuclear weapons, right? I mean, that mm-hmm. costs a tremendous amount of money. Mm-hmm. That's what the U.S. invested in uh, throughout the post-war period. Now, when the Soviet Union fell and that was over, supposedly there was no longer a basis to maintain such a large arsenal and therefore no longer a basis to have such a large military budget. Right, um, right. And yet there's really been, uh, uh, so, th- so there was a bit of a decline, but there's been an incredible rearmament of, um, of the U.S. and uh, more investment in these enormous military budgets. And in fact... Just speaking of nuclear weapons, uh, a new round of investment in the development of a new generation of nuclear weapons, <laughs> even though, again, there, I mean, there, there was never a justification for nuclear weapons. Right. But uh, there, the, the, the justification that existed after World War II, that it was necessary to outdo this Soviet adversary, okay, well, <laughs> that, that era is over, and yet yes. the United States, th- this budget actually... Um, it actually sets aside $65 million for the, the research and development of what they call y- low-yield nuclear weapons. Uh, and the first of all, the notion of a, a low-yield nuclear weapon, that is a weapon that is somehow uh, relatively not destructive, the whole thing is so absurd, right? It's impossible to have a, a low-yield nuclear weapon. Uh, but these are supposed to be tactical weapons that could be used on the battlefield. And so the idea uh-huh. is a weapon that won't obliterate, uh, you know, whole swaths of, of land and people entirely, but can be used by military tacticians. Uh, that is the idea behind uh, the, this new weapons program. And so what experts believe is that this actually makes the notion that nuclear weapons could be used more realistic because... Mm-hmm. Uh, they're being uh, approached by the Pentagon as, as possible uh, tactical weapons in, in, in their arsenal. So, 
that's it's really it's really alarming. It should should be alarming. There's virtually again no conversation about this uh, in, mm. in this country, and I think it's particularly important to point to today, which is uh, August 9th and the 73rd anniversary of the U.S. dropping of the atomic bomb on Nagasaki. Yes. Um, a few days ago was the the anniversary mm-hmm. of the U.S. dropping the bomb on Hiroshima. The United States remains the only country in the world to use atomic bombs during wartime, and it did so to destroy two cities. So it's very important that we call attention to the, the nuclear nightmares that they are funding uh, that, that, that they want to, that, that could happen in the future unless we stop it. I do find it fascinating that, you know, having a nuclear bomb back in the 50s was, you know, the other side isn't going to mess with us because we have a big club. We're going to whack them harder so they would right. never even think of whacking us. And basically it's been, you know, you're not going to use a nuclear weapon. You know, they've been obsolete for a long, long time. I mean, North Korea says they have nuclear weapons, and I suppose they they have some, but, you know, it it, it looks to me like uh, uh, rather juvenile boasting, actually, more than anything else. But these have been useless weapons, whereas cyber attacks are far more realistic. And now, you know, when I was growing up in the 50s, of course, there was a uh, duck and cover and, and people were afraid of nuclear weapons. So what you're saying is now in 2018, a long time into the future beyond that, we're making uh, nuclear attacks more possible. Now, isn't that swell? I mean, this is our tax dollars at work here. Why? What is their excuse? Why are they modernizing nuclear weapons? I, about 15 years ago, a military expert came to town here. He was touring the country, talking about what he saw as a massive waste on obsolete nuclear weapons that have been obsolete right. for years already. What, what? Why are we doing this? And what is the argument in favor of these uh, low-yield nuclear weapons, that we can actually use them? Uh, right. Well, that's, that is the... You know, I mean, it, it, it's true that, as you said, the the kind of um, the idea behind this enormous arms race that the United States uh, drove <laughs> um, after World War II, the idea was that this was somehow a deterrent, that by right, amassing right, right. such a large number of weapons, that that would somehow right. prevent the use of their weapons. I mean, which is which is such a, it's just so backwards, <laughs> logically. I mean, weapons are are designed to be used. Yes. Um, so um, so, so the, that whole logic needs to be questioned. But um, at the moment, again, I, I think that we're, we're talking about um, not only the conflicts that the United States is involved in today, but what they're anticipating for the future. Uh, and with that, we're really talking about uh, the rise of powers like China and Russia. The United States sees them as, as competitors, and therefore that's why we should develop these uh, these these nuclear weapons. Um, it, it is. I, I'm glad though that you brought up the history of uh, the 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 construction of the U.S.'s nuclear arsenal after World War II, because I mean, if you think about uh, not only the kind of research and development that went into figuring out all of these different ways of deploying nuclear weapons, um, but also the construction of missile silos across this country. Mm-hmm. Um, the outfitting of bombers uh, with, with nuclear weapons and the location of various military bases in this country and all around the world so that really at all times there were nuclear bombers, nuclear-armed bombers flying. Uh, the fact that nuclear submarines 
were sailing and continue to sail all around the world, ready to fire nuclear missiles at, at a moment's notice. Not only does that obviously uh, <laughs> hold tr- like catastrophic potential for humanity, you know, if, if there actually was a nuclear war, but it's also tremendously expensive to construct that kind of arsenal and to maintain it. And that's what the United States has essentially been doing uh, since World War II. It, that there was never, it's never the case that, that after the Soviet Union fell that they said, okay, well, now we can dismantle the, this infrastructure. Now we no longer need these, these missile silos. We can just close them. All these things are still being maintained. And in addition to that, they're now developing a new round of nuclear weapons. Oh, it's so reassuring. <laughs> Peacetime is swell, isn't it? Oh, my goodness. Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Curry Peterson-Smith, who is the Michael Ratner Middle East Fellow. And I did have a chance to get to know Michael Ratner a number of years ago. Oh, great. Yeah, one just a terrific guy. at the Institute. An amazing person. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, anyway, we're talking about the $717 billion defense bill that breezed through the Senate. Uh the IPS, the Institute Policy Study, saying it should be a national scandal. Now, I know a fair number uh, of liberal members of Congress, some really good people. I find it frustrating that so many of them consistently vote in lockstep for this bloated weapons budget. Could it be intentional that defense-related spending, which does create some jobs, is spread out into pretty much Every congressional district was that done on purpose so that even liberals don't dare to speak out. Yeah, I, I do think. I mean, again, I I think that the the starting point is a commitment to the idea that the United States has to be the number one country in the world, and that comes through tremendous military power uh, and, and and violence. And what that means is really. We live in a, a highly militarized country, and so it's it's through that commitment uh, that yeah, there are there, there's weapons manufacturing that takes place all around the country, and and, and in particular in uh, in New England, um, <laughs> where where it's you're true. broadcasting from, actually. Yeah. So you know when we think about heavily militarized places, we shouldn't just think about. Um, the battlefields of Somalia or the, the places that are hit by airstrikes in Yemen. We should also think about the suburbs of Boston, where all kinds of research and development yes. uh, takes place for weapons systems. Oh, yeah. Raytheon is there, a whole bunch of them. I mean, that whole 128 uh, uh, circle around Boston, perimeter around Boston, there's, there's a lot of uh, defense-related stuff there. And, of course, here in New Hampshire... And uh, one wonders if the uh, weapons contractors even need to make a case to Congress, given the political power of entities such as Lockheed Martin. I wonder if you could tell, talk to us about the, the weight, the political weight in the halls of Congress of Lockheed Martin. Is it fair to presume there, un, there are other untouchable sacred cow weapons contractors in the defense industry? What about Lockheed Martin? How much political power do they have? And are there others like of a similar level? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, inc- it's so or, co- corporations like Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, uh, Northrop Grumman, uh, General Dynamics, you know, I live in Washington, D.C., and you can, you know, you can see the Pentagon. It's, it's a place on the map. It's, you know, it's kind of down, down the road from, uh, from our offices here mm-hmm. at IPS. And if you go to the Pentagon, it, it neighbors um, an area called Pentagon City, 
And right. there you see the buildings. You see Lockheed Martin has offices there. You see Raytheon has offices there. And so they're right next to the Pentagon and right near the Congress. <laughs> they have easy access. I mean, really, the, the, these companies, um, it, it, there, there is no limit. Essentially, what we're seeing year after year from these these military uh, uh, spending bills is that there's no limit to what the U.S. will invest when it comes to developing weapon systems. So they they can uh, you know imagine as they wish what, what kind of systems uh, they want to develop. And in fact, I was really struck um, last week. I read an article uh, in which a spokesman from the Pentagon said, as I mentioned before, the Pentagon each year submits to Congress uh, what they call a wish list. Sure. You know, here are like the different every, weapon systems yeah. we're thinking of, right? Yeah. And, and so this, this spokesperson from the Pentagon said that for fiscal year 2020, they're actually not going to ask for a budget increase because it's already so high. <laughs> the, 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 it, it went up so high in 2018 and then again for 2019 that they said, you know what, in 2020, we're good, you know. We, we thank the Congress for what you've done, and now it's time to do our part in terms of using this money efficiently. But we have enough. And, and again, it's worth reflecting on whether it comes to questions of education or social services. I mean, is there, is there a single area in this society where there's a social need where people in charge can say, oh, we've got enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we don't need any more. Um, that is only the case when it comes to uh, questions of, of militarization. Ah, that that really is amazing. And there was this drawdown. I mean, this this war spending increased, of course, during the Afghan and Iraq wars, which, of course, Afghan wars still are going on. I don't think anybody knows why. Uh, But there have been massive troop drawdowns and multiple declarations of victory in the war on terror. So military spending in 2019 somehow is still $268 billion more than it was before the start of those wars. What's the explanation that they present to Congress, or did no one even ask? Yeah, again, you know, there are these these kind of routine Uh, briefings where the Pentagon will say, okay, here's what's happened in Afghanistan. And frankly, the briefings time after time and year after year are meant to explain why the mission is failing <laughs> because that's what's 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 what, oh what's they need right. more money sure yeah right exactly <laughs> and yet, and yet the, there's always a request for more funding and more time and it's just it's it's endless um you know i wanted to uh, let me maybe sure. um uh switch to a more hopeful note or, or or maybe kind of where we need to go because yes please um sure. you know your your show is about democracy right um, and I think that really we need the revival of an anti-war movement because, yes. as you pointed out, the U.S. is ongoingly involved in Afghanistan, but there's very little news about it. And yes. in, in fact, the number of civilian casualties in Afghanistan is rising. Oh um, it's, it's actually increasing. Mm. Um, similarly, the U.S. is involved in uh, very actively in places like Somalia, um, uh, you know, in places like Yemen, as we've been talking about. Uh, but there's all there, there's over a hundred countries where the, you know the United States has special has deployed special operations forces um, in the past year. Journalists like Nick Terse have done really important yes, investigative yes. journalism on this, right? Yes. Um, and I think the fact that we don't even know 
where the U.S. is involved actively yeah. in war fighting at the moment, it really points to, um, I think, the fact that there's been such a, that, 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 that the anti-war resistance that we saw in the lead-up to the U.S. invasion of Iraq mm-hmm. has receded so far. I mean, that was the thing. To the extent that there was any accountability for uh, military spending and for the U.S., what, what the U.S. does and funds abroad, that's what, what, what uh, forced the accountability was actually those protests in the streets. Yes. You know, um, it's, you think about in 2008 when there was um, uh, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama were, were both in a contest for the Democratic Party nomination. Among other things, everybody knew that Obama had voted against the U.S. invasion of Iraq, and everybody knew that Hillary Clinton had voted for it. That is, yes. there was a time when, when that vote took place, people knew where different Congress people stood, because there was a movement in the streets that was demanding some kind of accountability. And at the moment, it's just, it's just not even, there's no public conversation about it. Right. Um, and there's, there's not even, I mean, who knows which, which uh, representatives voted uh, for and against what. There, there is no movement kind of uh, forcing that accountability. So I think that we really need to revive that. And if we have that, then one would hope that it finds some reflection in uh, mainstream journalism, you know, mm. um, which, which I think is, it, it must be said as part of the problem. I mean, when the U.S. is about to invade a country, the focus is on the, to the extent that there's any conversation, the focus is on the military hardware, you know, mm. here are the different mm. weapon systems that the U.S. has. If they interview any experts, you know, quote-unquote experts, to talk about why the U.S. should be uh, should carry out this invasion or carry out these military operations, the people who they're interviewing are military officers from the Pentagon. They don't interview anti-war activists. They don't interview uh, Iraqis or Yemenis or the, the, the many people around the world who are on the receiving end of U.S. violence. Um, I think that if we start by rebuilding an anti-war movement, that can hopefully produce those kinds of things and some accountability. That is, I think, it's incredibly frustrating. I wish I knew who this quote came from. Politics and protest, both necessary, neither sufficient. Protest mm. protest does absolutely matter. It did help get us out of uh, the war in Vietnam. Mm. And I'm thinking the other side, the militaristic side, learn some lessons somehow yeah and and that people most people these days you know they're so focused on you know the orange lucifer in the white house all the time <laughs> yeah it's like who, nobody talks about war spending we feel like I, I think people have become convinced wrongly that there's nothing we can do we believe in our own powerlessness which is completely yeah. wrong it's totally wrong yeah. i don't know how you can revitalize it now they're now, not everybody in Congress voted for this, uh, what I would consider, uh, fiscally irresponsible budget. And, and again, the term fiscal conservative, if you just look at right. that from that angle, it's nuts. It's, ab- it's just crazy. But the IPS article, Institute for Policy Studies article, cites the numbers of the votes for the military budget in both houses of Congress. There was 359 to 54 in the House and 87 to 10 in the Senate. Right. I wonder about those 54 in the House and the 10 in the Senate putting themselves at political risk. I wonder if there are any particular names of some of the the good people there who who may have 
showed some uh, chutzpah, you know, and stood up to it. Uh, the 54 in the House and the 10 in the Senate, uh, uh, did they put themselves at political risk? Are they are they strengthened by this? What, what's your sense about that? And I don't know if you have any, if you can name names. Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I, I won't name names because I don't want to get it wrong. Um, okay, okay. <laughs> but... But I think that, you know, again, if you, as, as you mentioned uh, at, at the top of the show, this bill, which is passed every year, of course, yes, of it, course. Is the, uh, it, is, it is the most uncontested bill, the, the most uncontested piece of legislation that Congress passes every year. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's good um, if somebody uh, refuses to vote for it and actually says, says a word about it. Uh, but the fact is... Everybody, know, the, the way things are now, everybody knows that this thing is going to pass, you know, and that's yes, the thing that's that true. I think we need to, we need to change in a big way. Um, and, you know, there, there's actually a really good, I'll, I'll give you a heads up on um, a piece from another person here at IPS named Phyllis Bennis, a oh, um, yes, long-time expert on, on questions of U.S. foreign policy. Yeah, um, you know, she's got a really great piece coming out um, that is uh, about, you know, what, what, what we're seeing is, uh, a new spate of progressive candidates, mm. uh, which is a very exciting development. And she, she raises the question, what would a progressive foreign policy look like? Ah, yes. Uh, because, you know, th- there has, it's, it's good that we're, uh, and it, it's, it's important and necessary that we're finally talking about things like universal health care in yes. this country, which, you know, the United States is an outlier when it comes oh. to universal health care. I mean, every comparable country whether you're talking about Canada or the countries of Western Europe or Japan or Australia or New Zealand, I mean, they all have some form of universal health care, and the United States doesn't. So it's great uh, that that has finally become an issue uh, in these campaigns. But the question of foreign policy, the question of what the U.S. does and funds abroad, very rarely comes up. You know, even, it's interesting, uh, the the summer, the beginning of the summer, so much of it, it, it was it was the headlines were dominated i think rightly by this nightmare at the southern border where yeah. the united states was separating families and caging children and detaining migrants and continues to detain families um it's it's so important that we finally uh, had a spotlight on on that yes. kind of violence but too few people asked the question what is happening in central america that would lead so many people to leave right. their homes and come north. And no. to answer that question, God, you have really? to talk about what the United States is doing. Absolutely. Absolutely. We, we you know, didn't entirely create that, but in Guatemala, in El Salvador, yep. all over the place, Honduras. Uh, yep. Thank you, Hillary Clinton, 2009. Uh, yep. <laughs> but, you know, you just look at, well, these, these people are coming over. We can't have them here. Of course, they're darker skin. That may be a right. big part of the factor there. But if we want to build real national security, it seems to me, yes, we have to start looking at that. And I wonder, I, I have to believe there are some good senators, for example. Uh, I know that in the in the U.S. Senate, the only senator to vote uh, for Bernie Sanders over the party nominee was uh, Jeff Merkley of, of uh, Oregon, who I think is running in 2020 for president. I wonder if the politics of a presidential race might help focus questions about American runaway military spending and dangerous new weapons programs. What do we know about Merkley or uh, Elizabeth Warren? Warren? Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, it's a good question. And, um, 
unfortunately, I don't have great, <laughs> you know, it's not a super positive response that I have. Yeah, because I, I, I Again, right. I do, I think <laughs> that the commitment to U.S. military power and political power on the world stage is so deep that somebody like Elizabeth Warren, who will say, you know, she'll, she said Black Lives Matter, to her credit, you yes, know. She did. Um, and she continues to, uh, to speak out against uh, white supremacist violence, which, is fair, which is unfortunately remains important to do. Um, you know, she has said good things about health care and about um, corporations and, and how uh, they need more regulation and things like that. But when it comes to U.S. power abroad, I mean, she, she actually... Um, it's interesting when Trump the, Trump was uh, pursuing the these negotiations with uh, Kim Jong Un in, in in North Korea, and and I say I say pursuing, we'll, we'll put that in quotes because it's kind of it's a bit strange. I mean, a year ago, Trump is saying that the U.S. should annihilate North Korea, and right. then Fire earlier and this year he says, well, maybe we can sit down with them, and then he says, no, the the meeting's off, and he says, "No, I'm going to meet with him." So I, I don't think that I don't think that Trump is exactly a, a, a peacemaker here, but he's about to sit down and negotiate with North Korea, and Elizabeth Warren is one of the the senators who speaks up actually against that and says we can't trust the North Koreans. She herself makes a trip to uh, the Korean Peninsula and talks about a harrowing experience that she had at the DMZ at the you know the border between North and South Korea and how aggressive the North Koreans were. And really what she was saying is that the United States should maintain its aggressive posture oh in the my. Korean Peninsula. Hmm. So unfortunately, you know, the, the, the kind of concern for social justice doesn't extend beyond the borders of the United States, and that's something that we've got to change. I wonder how that can be done. I'm remembering there was a quote, I won't get it exactly right, from Franklin Roosevelt, who, uh, after being asked by A. Philip Randolph to do something about uh, segregation and discrimination, uh, say, yes, I'm with you. I want to help you. Now go out there and make me do it. <laughs> That's right. what people don't understand, is that yeah. these, these, the politicians, you know, every side, Democrat, Republican, they put their finger to the wind and see which way the wind is blowing. And if they right. hear strength from the people in the streets then it'll make it safer for them to do something about it. What, what can possibly stimulate this? What can get people out of the funk of thinking we don't have any political power? I, I mean, I just don't see anything going on right now in terms of, you know, our, well, part of the problem, I think, is that, uh, you know, the old idea of boots on the ground. Well, Obama, I'll never forget in 2008, I saw a button, political button that had a peace symbol with the word Obama on it, like, Hello, uh, wasn't <laughs> quite real, uh, yeah. but you know to actually do something about that, we don't have. We're not losing our brothers and sisters and family members in other wars, so we don't see it. How right. do, do you see any? Give me some reason for optimism, please. Right. Okay. Well, I, I can I can give you some reasons for optimism, but they're a bit. They're a bit uh, through the through the side door, so just bear with me. Um, you know, I, I think that since the the um, the U.S. declared a war on terror, one of the things that that um, the federal government has done is they've invested a tremendous amount into obscuring that war yes. to the people who actually live here in the United States. You know, if if we remember. Um, 
when asked how many Iraqis were killed during the U.S. invasion of Iraq uh, in 2003, Donald Rumsfeld, the then Secretary of Defense, uh, infamously replied, well, we don't do body counts, right? Right. Now, um, you know, I think you uh, lived through the era of the U.S.'s war in Vietnam, and my understanding is that there was the, the the so-called body count that is um, the number of people killed in, in in Vietnam was part of the the nightly news. Now, yes, they didn't say we killed people; they said we killed the enemy or Viet Cong or whatever. Right. But there was a, a knowledge that on a basic level, I mean, the the, the the most basic fact about war, which is that people are being killed, that was broadcast on a daily basis, and the United States was doing the killing. And often, you know, I think journalism looked quite different. I mean, there were reporters who were going to Vietnam and actually broadcasting footage back to the United States of of the atrocities that the United States was committing. Um, And there has been a a, a tremendous amount invested to prevent that kind of thing. Um, You may remember the decision to not show the return of coffins of U.S. Right. soldiers to Andrews Air Force Base um, Bush, here in yeah. Maryland, yep. right? What, what, and, and the whole idea is to obscure the number of casualties of Americans, let alone Iraqis and Afghans and all the other people um, uh, impacted by the, the war. Um, you know, there was this whole effort to cultivate what, what, what now has just become a kind of matter of course, so-called embedded journalism, giving this this kind of prize to journalists, you know, you can have exclusive access to a U.S. military unit. You can actually be with our troops. And there's an unspoken understanding that, of course, you're not going to say anything that's embarrassing about what those troops are doing, right? And so I I, I think that they've done all of that precisely because they're afraid of what might happen if people in this country know about what the U.S. is actually doing. I, th- I think that we should really uh-huh. take, a, take it as, a, in a way, a point of pride that the people who run this country believe that if we actually had the information, we would oppose right. what the U.S. is doing. Right. Now, the challenge is because it is being obscured, I think that activists and journalists like yourself, you know, we have to do that work of uncovering that what they've obscured. But the fact that they're so afraid for us to have this information, I think it, it, hmm. it speaks to something fundament, fundamentally good and hopeful about the people who live in this country. Oh, that is a very good point, and the access to information. Are there political groups which are raising these issues and who might be encouraging uh, resistance to these massive, wasteful budgets. I mean, there's the IPS, which is getting the information right. out there. Very important. Institute for Policy Studies, IPS.org, I believe it is. Right. Uh, uh, IPS-DC.org. Ah, IPS-DC.org. That's important to say. Other political groups, protest groups that are trying to get a handle on this and, and raise these issues. You know, Bernie Sanders talked a lot about you know, domestic issues, you know, in, investing in what I would call real national security. But in terms of waking people up, and, and as you point out, if people have this information, we're not going to be in favor of it. Any groups that you know of that are that are working on this, or are you guys it? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. I mean, unfortunately, I think there's very little. You know, there is an organization called Code Pink that ah, we yes, work Code with Pink. quite closely, you sure. know, and they've done a great job of yes. um, calling attention to U.S. violence abroad and also the the kind of gendered implications of those violence, that oh, violence, the fact yes. that 
the majority of victims always, again, this should really be understood as a basic fact of war, but the majority of victims are always women and children. And a lot more, there's a lot more, of course, to say about the question of gender and masculinity and militarization. Oh, yes. Opinion, right? Oh, God. Um, so, right. So um, there's not a ton. I mean, there is one one um, organization I'll just, I will plug is um, sure. Doctors Without Borders, um, oh, yeah. which, you know, we know is a humanitarian, people may, may have heard it as a, it's a humanitarian organization that, of course, provides medical care um, all around the world and uh, for people in all kinds of distress situations, but in particular in conflict zones. And one thing is that if you follow, for example, um, Doctors Without Borders in Yemen, and they're, they're known um, as MSF by their their, um, sure, their uh, name in French. Um, yeah. So, you know, if you go to MSF Yemen on Twitter, it, you know, it's not only are they reporting the number of casualties of Yemenis who are impacted by these Saudi and Emirati airstrikes, but the fact is that Doctors Without Borders themselves have been targeted by the combatants. They've, they, the MSF facilities have been attacked by Saudi Arabia and the UAE as they were actually attacked in Afghanistan by the United States. The U.S. actually attacked um, a Doctors Without Borders facility in Afghanistan mm. in 2015. And you know, to their great credit, Doctors Without Borders refused to back down. The Pentagon said, oh, you know, this must be a mistake. We're going to look mm-hmm. into it. And mm-hmm. Doctors Without Borders said, it's not a mistake. Our facilities have giant MSF sure. insignia painted onto the roofs. We give the coordinates of all of our facilities to every combatant. So the U.S. can't say that on one hand we use smart bombs and precision munitions and then at the same time say, oh, we made a mistake and bombed a hospital, you know, accidentally. I mean, there's an intention here that you have to be held accountable for. So there are some fantastic journalists. There's this guy, Anand Gopal, um, who I think is an excellent writer, Jeremy Scahill. You know, there's a number of pieces. uh, This this woman, um, Lama Al-Aryan, who has a, a new report out uh, on NPR, actually, about U.S. funding to Egypt. Um, the U.S. suspended funding to uh, military aid to Egypt last year because it was so obvious that the, the human rights abuses that the Egyptian government sure. was carrying out were so egregious that, you know, it violated U.S. law. And at the end of July, the U.S., the State Department decided to release that funding, even though the human rights abuses have actually gotten worse. So. Oh, Lama Al Aryan wrote an excellent piece about that. So there are some there are some good investigative journalists. You know, I'm glad that journalists like yourself are facilitating these conversations. But the fact is, I think we've got a lot of rebuilding to do. And frankly, you know, veterans of past movements like yourself, we really we really need you. I mean, there there's um, it's great that there's an excitement around. Uh, new progressive yeah. um, you know, movements and politicians like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I mean, oh, that, yeah. th- there, there is something new happening in this country, but without, in my opinion, that link to, in particular, mm-hmm. movements that challenged militarism of the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and, and you know, what the U.S. was doing in Central America, yes. there were people here who opposed that. We really, as somebody uh, from a younger generation, I'll say we really need you all. Ah. Um, and uh, there's so much that we have to learn from you all to revive that. We are brothers in arms, as it were. ips org. Thank you so much. And uh, with this budget, you know, information is power. And they know it. And we got to know it. Thank you so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive. We're in the fight together. I really appreciate it. Thank, Thank you.
that the young soldiers tell them it's all right. He knows of their fear in the forthcoming fight. Soon there'll be blood and many will die. Mothers and fathers back home they will cry. 